Uh, Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand high, and the guys will bring you a Bible, and it's page 567. As we start this new series, five weeks that we're calling Scandalous on the tough sayings of Jesus. So as we're working, anybody who's just working their way through a Bible is going to know that they're going to come to sections that are going to be really difficult, and they're going to cause all sorts of consternation as they talk about them. So page 567, and this is one of those kind of areas that we're at uh, here today. It's the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to look at the first five verses And uh, let let me just read them through, then we'll come back and comment on them. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Verse 3, I tell you, no... But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke chapter 13, verse 4. Or do you suppose... Did I give you the wrong passage? You know, I don't need... I'm eligible for Social Security in two months. I don't need this gig. How can I say this? Luke chapter 13. Did I not say that? Well, if you knew your Bibles, you knew it was Luke chapter 13. I'm so not focused, obviously. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through 5. So let me start at the beginning. We'll try to regroup. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus, him, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifice. Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the other men who live in Jerusalem. Verse 5, and you'll notice it's essentially it is identical to verse 3. I tell you, no, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, now time is really going to be important to us today and valuable. But, but you get right away in verse 1 on the same occasion. So you get a connection. I think we understand that the chapter breaks and the verse breaks there were not in the original in the original manuscripts. Those were added later for us for ease, just like we did there, and easily direct you to a specific passage of scripture. So this is an occasion where Jesus has been speaking, and there are many, 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 many gathered. And there's been a situation where he's been interrupted a couple times, and we don't know the formality of their flow or necessarily how the whole event was structured. But now they come to him and they they report something to him. Uh, They comment on on an actual occurrence. So, So Jesus then after that makes reference to another occurrence. 
that we don't know either of these specifically the details, but they did. By the way, that should be a lesson to those of you who teach, is that it's okay to connect with people around events that they understand. Uh, I have, after this service, I go over and and um, we do a connect class. We do one once a month. If you're new to us, you can register your attendance and mark connect on it, and we'll call you when the next one is. We do it, like I said, about once a month. And, and so I'll go over, and there'll be a Q&A. And, and oftentimes, depending upon the, how the questions go and the answers and what they've covered before, will be a discussion about some of our values. And every once in a while, the idea of being relevant will come up. And depending upon how I'm feeling, I'm today I'm very kind of, I don't know, frustrated, melancholy. Uh, so, so, so I'll be combative today. Um, so they'll ask, relevant, you know, I'm always, and I'll say, well, listen, you know, pal. I won't say that. But, but I'll say, well, listen, well, you know, what's the option? Okay, if I'm not relevant, I'm irrelevant, and, and that just, we put it on a few mugs just to try it, and it didn't look good. Come to our church, it's irrelevant. So, so it's not that, but I, but I also understand the undercurrent. The undercurrent and the fear is people are going, oh, you're so concerned about lights and backdrops and graphics that you'll lose the message for the sake of being relevant. And, and I would say, here's a great example of Jesus doing both, connecting with his listeners. Like, I, to me, here you go. I can't imagine something on this Sunday in our, in our day in the United States of America uh, on September 11th, 2011, I can't imagine you could be more irrelevant than to not talk about 9-11. I mean, it just seems to me it's obvious. It's, it's just all over. So w- how do we look at that kind of corporately? So when we sat and we put this series together, we went to a passage with me at the table going, guys, 9-11, 10th anniversary, Sunday, and we said, okay, this is a perfect example because this is kind of what Jesus is dealing with, a little bit what we dealt with on 9-11. So they're coming to him, and they're going, here are all these disasters all around us, and, and there's, there's a whole bunch of questions that pile up. Kind of the overriding question is, where, where was God on 9-11? So where was God when Pilate slaughtered these Galileans. And then you start to kind of parse it out and go, well, well, are some people who are in the midst of a tragedy, did this happen to them because they are more guilty than others? Well, why did, I was watched an interview with a gal who was with, with two co-workers, so the three of them were there, and she said, you all stay in this room and I'll go get coffee. She was in the Pentagon. She went and got coffee. They got killed. Did, did they deserve it? Were they greater sinners? That's what these people are coming. And they're coming and going, what about this? And Jesus is going, well, what's your point? Are you concerned that somehow these people are intrinsically worse than you? So we get that all the time when we see disasters, hardship. I, I brought my phone this is not to be a role model, but let me punch the code in just to kind of go. And all I did is go, and it, and it, and it kind of refreshes. Here are headlines, USA Today headlines. Um, Illinois City touched by 9-11 events 800 miles away, so there'll be a connection there. Uh, across the nation, Americans pay tribute. Uh, Obama laying a wreath in Shanksville Memorial. 
Bomb at U.S. base in Afghanistan kills 77. Obama calls for unity. Firefighters make progress on wildfires. Texas residents allowed back after wildfires. So that's the nation. If I, if I just do... If I do world, it'll just kind of be more of the same. 9-11 events, uh, two Yemen soldiers killed, Libyan fighters battle, Pope prays for victims, bomb in Afghanistan, Iraq cleric speaks to followers, Japan marks six months since earthquake tsunami, Jewish security police arrest four terror suspects. You get the sense of it. It's like all around us. We get it all around us. And then we look at that, and then sometimes, so you'll get somebody like a Pat Robertson, where he sounds like an idiot, where he's trying to figure out if the hurricane is God's judgment, and, and this is God's judgment. Michelle Bachman just, I don't know why these politicians get into what God's doing through a hurricane. You know, is that God's judgment on it? And if you want to play that game, then why do you hit that city and not this city? Is that city worse? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is responding to these people about. So, so if God's going to kill all the bad guys, how many are left? Well, that's a problem. Right? So why does this happen here? Why does it happen there? And Jesus is saying to them, listen, think about this for a second. Okay, here's Pilate. Pilate is a bad guy. He ruled from 26 to 36. Uh, he was known as being wicked, lots of bribes going on. He was vicious. Uh, he was there uh, to represent the Romans, to, to keep peace, to suppress any sort of uprising, and maybe even to do some preventative suppression even. We'll, we'll make an example out of them. So apparently the event that's talked about in, in verse 1 here. Is, is over Passover time, and we've talked about this before as we've studied different passages, Pilate typically hung out at Caesarea. He would typically hang out in, in, in the ocean. So here you go. Pilate would typically go to La Jolla, but every Passover he had to go to Yuma. Okay, that kind of, you, if you can think of that radical thing. So he's in Jerusalem, doesn't want to necessarily be there. But he's there. The Galileans had a reputation as kind of being rabble-rousers. They would stir people up. And it may be that there was actually something going on. Or like I said, he's doing a preventative move. I don't know. But apparently he goes in and he slaughters these people. And the, the blood of the Galileans and the blood of the sacrifices are, are swept together, which would give you the sense that perhaps this occurred at the temple or around the temple. We know there were about 250,000 lambs slaughtered at Passover. There's a lot of blood flowing. And, and Jesus uses this occasion to, to, get, to say, wait a minute. You're trying to figure this whole thing out. Are they worse? Who's worse? And the reality is, you better understand, this moment might, might demonstrate judgment, but for sure demonstrates mercy in that you deserved what they got too. That's, that's what Jesus is, is pushing toward. That's why you'll see that, that same identical verse in verse 3, verse 5. Then he talks about another thing. There's this tower probably in the midst of a, of a time of, of construction, and this tower collapses. 
So Jesus mentions this. He said, what do you think? You think the 18 guys that died in the midst of that, do you think they're worse than everyone else? So what Jesus is pushing to the table is a discussion on judgment and justice. And he's saying, listen, let's not get distracted with this, but let's use them as a time for us to really examine, if you will, our own life. Every time I do a, a memorial service, a funeral, I'll stand, let's say for sake of illustration, it's here. Let's say there's a casket there. Whether I know the person, don't know the person, kind of know the person, I'll never conduct a memorial service where I don't make essentially somewhere in there the same point. And that would be, don't waste this funeral. How could you waste the funeral? If you fail to understand that what happened to that person is going to happen to you too. So, so you, it would be foolish to think that for whatever reason this person got sick and died or there was a calamity in their life or whatever it was and they got what they deserved, whatever those things are, Jesus is saying, no, this is a reality for all of us. In all of our lives there will be this moment. It may come at age 13 or 33 or 53 or 103 where we'll die. He said, you need to be ready to die. You need to repent. And, and that means to turn. It's not to do a 360, because I end up right back where I start, to do a 180. It's to change my view of who I am and who God is and, and how life is. It's to begin to see things as God sees them. And in both of these occasions, what Jesus is doing is driving this home. In essence, he was saying, don't waste that calamity. Because if you waste that calamity, and the way you could do it is, is to fail to understand that it, that it has repercussions to you. Don't get absorbed in all these discussions about where was God on 9-11. I can tell you where he was on 9-11. Same place he was on 9-12 and 9-10. On the throne in charge. Why did that happen? And, and I don't think it's because I'm anti-intellectual. I don't think it's because I'm not deep. There are just certain things that I can't really know and understand and explain. Why did she go and get coffee and they stay? I, I don't know. I can't know all that. It's not about judgment as much as God is saying, I want you to see patience in the midst of this. So when we designed this series, we designed it knowing that we'd have this, this moment today where we would stop and literally the whole nation, it, whether you're at a football game or a picnic or you're watching anything on TV or listening to anything on the radio, reading anything in the newspaper, anything really on the computer where you're gathering news, you can't miss 9-11. So that's why we picked this passage. And, and I think you can take it and go, well, what do I learn there? So here's what I decided to do. I went back and I pulled the message that I gave on my first Sunday back from 9-11. So when 9-11 hit, uh, Susan and I had just left Washington. We were in Virginia. We had plane, We had tickets out of Dulles on 9-12. So we were driving. I was there to speak. And um, we were there. And, and we're at Appomattox, where, where Lee surrendered to Grant, and they told us we had to leave the park, that the, park, that, that the United States was under attack. 
And I said, well, pal, they ain't going to hit Appomattox. We're in the middle of nowhere. But he made me leave the park without ever getting in to see the surrender site. And we listened to all of this on the radio. And, and I learned a lot there. I learned a picture is worth a thousand words. Because when we got to the hotel and we turned on the TV, what we saw was very different than what we listened well, we were stuck there, faced with it, and I got on the phone right away. It was clear because all, all of the planes were grounded for the next three or four days. So I tried Amtrak. That didn't work. And we had rented the last car. We were staying at the Pentagon. We were staying at the Doubletree Pentagon. In fact, on 9-8, uh, Susan and I were at the Washington M Monument. So at the Washington Monument, you can see the White House. You can see Congress. You can see the Lincoln Memorial. And Susan, and they're practicing, the pilots are practicing landing Marine One. That's the president's helicopter. And the planes are coming out of Reagan, and I said to Susan, I don't understand why bad guys don't take these planes and fly them into these buildings. That just seems so obvious and easy to me. And we would sit, I would sit at night, and, and so my, our room at, at, at the Doubletree, we'd see the Reagan and the Pentagon's right over here, and we watched those planes, and I said it to her again the next night. I said, gosh, I don't understand why guys don't do this. So I think like a terrorist. <laughs> well, we rented, I assumed renting a car in Washington was going to be easy. I went to budget. I got the last car there was. It was a Kia. It was about the size of that drum set. And, and so now we're in Virginia with no hopes of getting here, so I tell Susan we're going to drive back to Phoenix. We went to, the, we went out, went to the gas station, and I said to the guy, I need to buy a map, and he said, where are you going? I said, Phoenix, and he goes, well, right down here is Interstate 40. Make a right, when you get the Flagstaff, make a left. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> Save me $12.95 or whatever it was. So we were, if you, some of you were old enough to have seen the movie The Right Stuff. So in The Right Stuff, John Glenn is re-entering the atmosphere. Remember that scene? That's what it was like for four days in that Kia <laughs> driving back here. So I would talk to Neil. I'd get reports on what people wanted. The, all of our neighbors here, okay? So the car guys and all of the people wanted us to open the church so that they could come and pray church was full so I thought well I'll go back and, and I'll pull my powerpoint from that day and I was struck by a couple things one how prophetic it was and, and the other is how applicable it is okay here you go now hang on not to just 9-11 but to our everyday 9-11s 9-11 was that moment where all of us stood back and it took our breath away and we said oh wow and we had that experience in, in, in commonality. But in reality, you have your own personal 9-11s all the time. We're just not pulled into your world with you to share them. Or if we are, we can't understand really the magnitude of it even. So, so I, I edited some of it. I took out some of the, the PowerPoint and the slides, but I thought I'd use them this morning. Now, something happens technically because of limitations we have. Over in the conference center, they see me on video. For us to show something on the screen, this is an answer to prayer, they lose me on video, okay? So they don't have to look at me, but they can still hear me. 
So what's going to happen now for a while, maybe it's even the rest of the morning, I'm not sure, over in the conference center, you're going to lose the video feed of me, but you'll get the audio and you'll see the PowerPoint that you all are going to see. And these are the same slides I used, but, you know, essentially 10 years ago. So here was the first point. Take a look at the first slide. Doctrine is especially important, essential, I say, in, in uncertain times. That's the overarching point under which I make three really simple but important points. When, when, when times are difficult, times are uncertain, was 9-11 one of those? Sure it was. I mean, we sit here today and we haven't seen an attack on the country since then. And in reality, if you could rewind on 9-12, 9-13, 9-14, everybody was petrified that there was going to be another one sometime soon. Are, are times uncertain? I just had a discussion with, with somebody this morning. We were talking about business. And I said, I don't even know how you'd make a business deal. I wouldn't even know how to evaluate, and this is what I did for a living. I don't know how you'd evaluate a piece of property and then go and buy that center. So, so, you've, so you've got a guaranteed non-recourse lease or, or recourse lease from borders. What good is that? So I don't even know in that. I, I, I firmly believe, and you, let, me, let me do this, because some of you are new. <laughs> some of you are new. Uh, you just need to know, I'm the guy who every, every silver lining has a cloud, and I'm determined to find it, okay? So, so I, I'm not, I'm not your guy. If you, if you want everything's going to be better, I'm just not your dude. You, you need to find another place, because this is not going to be good, Okay. So I don't think it's going to be good. Those of you that are out of work or making 75 grand a year, you're, you may get new jobs at 40. This is the way it is. All the rules are off. Trust is, trust is gone. Making things work is going to be varied. To think it's going to be like it was. By the way, my concluding point, I'm not, I'm not going to get there because of time today. My concluding point 10 years ago is never things, everything's never going to be the same. And it hasn't been since. Well, in the midst of this, when everything is around me shaking, I need to remember God is sovereign. Let me say it again. Where was he on 9-11? The same place he was on 9-10 and 9-12. The same place he's always been and always will be. He's on the throne. He's sovereign. Webster defines sovereign this way. Above or superior to all others. Supreme in power and rank and authority. He doesn't answer to anyone. There's no authority over him. He doesn't ask you for permission or owe you an explanation. He's God. He does as he wills and he does as he chooses and he's not subject to anyone. Everything, on the other hand, is under his control and authority. So R.C. Sproul has coined the phrase, there's no maverick molecule in the universe. There's no molecule that's out there floating around somewhere that could usurp his plan. God has his plan. God's will will be done. He is the beginning and the end and the alpha and the omega. You know all of that. He's in control. He, he spoke this world into existence and he sustains it. In the Old Testament, there's an interesting guy. His name is Nebuchadnezzar, and he's, he's essentially king of the world. And he has this moment where he's built this kingdom, and he's walking around on top of, of the wall that surrounds the city, the wall so thick that they used to race chariots on it. 
and, and, and he's humming his favorite song, How Great I Art. And at that moment, God strikes him. And he spends the next seven years wandering with the cattle eating grass. Autobiographically, he tells us what he's thinking at the end. It's in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. He says this. But at the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He said, when my, one of the translations says, when my senses returned to me, when I begin to think clearly, when all of a sudden I saw God for who he is and me for who I am and the world for what it is, at that moment what happened was I blessed the Lord, I praised the Lord, I worshipped him. And what struck me, he said, is that his dominion, his rule, his authority lasts forever. It's the equivalent of that Isaiah moment where Isaiah sees and hears the, the seraphim singing around the throne, holy, 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 and when Isaiah says it, he says, woe to me for I'm undone. Because I begin to see God for who he really is, how he really is, what he really does. Not a caricature of this. See, that's why I say in times of uncertainty, because what do you see in times of uncertainty? Everybody giving you their best guess at what God should do. So you got it right now. I haven't had a chance to see it, don't even really need to, but I'll guarantee you, all of these memorial services, the minute they try to get, quote, spiritual, I'll guarantee you they get goofy. That's what happened after 9-11. I'm sure you remember it. The big gathering after 9-11 was this ecumenical gathering in Yankee Stadium. Oprah presided. And I said it and since then. It's a great line, but it's true. And they did everything but sacrifice a goat. They had Indians there and Buddhists there. They had everything there. As though every faith is equally valid. We live in a country that protects everybody's right to worship. But don't mistake that to say every faith is true. They can't be because they're contradictory. God speaks to us through his word. We just spent 13 weeks on doctrine. And in times of uncertainty, I feel like I need to either understand God or I somehow need to rescue his reputation. I want to somehow say, oh, God couldn't have stopped. Sure, he could have stopped 9-11. Sure, he could have. Either caused it or allowed it. But he's not hung up on responsibility. What does he say to us? Who made the deaf? Who made the dumb? Who made the blind? I did. I don't feel like I have to go and be able to explain it or that God, very important, or that God owes me an answer for this. God doesn't owe me an answer. He's God. You're not. He's sovereign. You're not. Here's the, the, the thing for me then. As I, as I build on it and I go, okay, so what I want to get is see the world and God and myself as he sees it. And then it becomes a foundation. And now it becomes the, the footing for what I believe. So the 9-11s in my life don't blow me to and fro when they come. 
We, we can be surprised by 9-11 flying planes into the Twin Towers. I get it. We're surprised by that event, but we're not surprised when difficulties come. You shouldn't be surprised when you or somebody you love or people in your family find a spot in an x-ray or lose their job or have family members that say goodbye or have relational difficulties. It's part of life. God's sovereign. God's in control. You don't need to move him around at that moment or spare his reputation. Here was the second point. Doctrine's essential, especially in times of uncertainty. And these are so elementary. That's why 10 years later they still fit. Is Everything is temporary. Now, this is one of those things that cognitively we all know, but we don't seem to accept it or, or implement it in my wife. I talk, my life, I talk about my grandmother. I, I have four grandparents. My grandmother, my dad's mom, was the weakest. She was always sick, very frail. We always thought she would die. She lived to be like 94. So she was the, the toughest of them. She was a little lady. I think my, my brother told me the other day, I think he said my mom weighs now about 88 pounds, 89 pounds. So my grandmother was that size. Very frail, really bad arthritis. Um, they lived in a little, they lived in a place called Melrose, Iowa. There's about 250, 300 people there. They lived in this dumpy little, little house. Uh, but in this house, this two-bedroom house, uh, they, they had, uh, grandma and grandpa had one bedroom. All six kids were in another bedroom upstairs. They were there until they went away to, to either college or got married. All six of them, boys and girls. And, and, and I, it took me a while. I read a wonderful book uh, years ago that really helped me understand my grandma and grandparents and, and really that whole generation. Because when we would go and see her, she was always baking bread. She was always making something. And that was kind of her way. That's all she had. Uh, she was a really simple lady. She, she listened to the twins, twins on the radio all the time. She loved wrestling on television to the day she died. She's convinced it's real. And she loved Bobby Knight. She thought Bobby Knight was like this, this, this great iconic. She would say, Tommy, I feel so sorry for Bobby Knight. He just has that one red plaid coat. And I said, well, I think it'll be all right, Grandma. And, and so she was a tough. Her morning, for a while, her morning man on the radio um, was uh, Ronald Reagan. So she listened to WHO in Des Moines. When in 19, I think it was 68, 64, 68, she, she said, Dutch just got elected pre uh, governor of California. What do you think? And I didn't, first time I'd hear Reagan called Dutch. So we would give and take. We would go back and forth. She, she, was, she, would, like to, she would like to trade barbs with you. The last time I saw her, I went in, and she was very frail, and I fired a couple of shots at her, and, and she, didn't, nothing, she didn't have anything to come back with. Now, I, I know I've made this point to you about 500 times, but, but maybe never well. Maybe this will be the best ever. When I left that moment in that car, I can picture it, driving all the way back. So I'm driving down, driving out of Sheridan, I'm driving to Knoxville, I'm going to Newton, and I'm going back to Davenport. All that way, I kept going back and forth. I know that's my future, but I can't see me there. Does that make sense? It's the same thing I have at summer camp every year with the junior high and high schoolers. Okay, Here's these junior high boys and high school boys who can't get a date, but you're trying to convince them that one day they'll get married, which excites them, and then you'll tell them they won't drive a Corvette, they'll drive a minivan, which discourages them. <laughs> 
okay? Because they all think they're different than everybody. It's all the same. It is all the same. So, so here's, here's what I battle all the time in my, in my own life, and I have to be very careful of this, is that there's a sense in which none of this stuff matters. And yet it's really important. So these, these things that are going on in life that, that, that don't matter, the buying, the selling, the trading, and yet at the same time they're very important. But they need context. All, all, of, this is, all of this is temporary. All of this is passing away. James, James chapter 1. Come now, you say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This is all momentary. Life, life is like a vapor. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. The whole world is passing away. The scripture talks about it from beginning to end. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a season to live, season to die, season to laugh, season to time. Time, time to, to cry, time to laugh. Time to plant, time to harvest. There's this temporariness. Now, he doesn't say, therefore, withdraw from life. Verse 15, he says, instead, rather... You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Rather than acknowledge that life is like a vapor, you're, you're saying, I'm going to go to this, I'm going to go do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and this is the certainty of it. He's not saying here, don't plan. The phrase I love, and it's like, today feels like my giant bumper sticker to me. It's we write our, our plans in pencil, but God has the eraser. I should plan. I should be prepared. I, I believe in heaven insurance and, and financial planning, and we plan here, and we plan the sermon series, and we have a master plan for the campus. And It's not saying don't plan, but it's saying it's arrogant if you make plans and you don't understand that God can change those at any point in time. And if you're really committed to him, you want him to change them to align with his plan. Because it's distinctly possible that we could think and meet and pray and talk and develop a plan that isn't his plan. And he, and he may want to do things that, that don't make any sense to us. We, we may look at our own life and we may say, boy, this makes perfect sense. I'm going to go here, I'm going to go here, I'm going to do this. And God says, no, that's not going to happen. There's going to be a 9-11 equivalent in your life we see it all the time you know it you can rewind and go back and go there were these moments in our life where we had this thing all planned out but it didn't work the way we planned and in the final analysis it was better off god had a better plan well here's the third point is that god works all things together for good so as you see the three of them on the screen, you're kind of going, this is really basic, isn't it? Yes, it is basic. This is really simple, isn't it? I guess, but it's really profound too. God works all things together for good. Now that flows directly from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And as you look at that on the screen, you, you need to understand that we're prone to edit this verse. So oftentimes, like if I'm in a smaller setting, uh, uh, meaning with you know maybe a couple dozen people and we're working our way through something. I'll say, can anybody quote Romans eight twenty eight? 
And in that instance, almost always, they will start with, all things work together for good. So those who love God are calling to his purpose. Well, when you quote, starting with all things, you make the verse about you. You did what, what Susan says I can do. She says I can make anything about me. So you took a verse that's all about God and made it all about you. Now, here's the other way we tend to use that verse. And, and George W. Bush did it after 9-11, talking to the nation. He quoted Romans 8:28, And here's what he said. All things work together for good. Now, he stopped right there. Well, that verse doesn't say all things work together for good for all people in all places at all times. It doesn't say that. It's not a universal promise to every person that lives. All things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his pur purpose. In other words, to his people. So what that verse is saying, here's what we know. God causes all things to work together for good. In other words, God's in control. I like to say it this way. If I had a Bible that only had one verse in it, it was this verse, from that I can conclude that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. For him to work all things together for good means that he has to be powerful, all-powerful, and he must be all-knowing. So God knows everything there is to know, past, present, future, about you, us, the world, everything, and he knows everything there is to know about it. And he has the control to change it if he desires to alter it to work it together does god cause sin nobody has the ability to use it for good for everybody no to those who love him who are those his kids to those called according to his purpose who's that his kids god's all-knowing all-powerful works all things together now that can be a source of either great comfort to you or it can be scary and maybe a little bit of both. So, so when a husband and wife are sitting, and you hear it all the time, you know, with a husband or the wife, one of the two will say, I never would have married you, you bum, if I knew that about you. Right? If I knew that about you, I would have never done this. God will never say to you, I would have never chosen you to be my kid if I'd have known that about you. Because he knows everything there is to know about you, everything you ever thought, everything you ever said. So we could take those, as we did 10 years ago, and we could really expand that. I, I want to look at this, because there are two big points I want to take as kind of takeaway. Number one, remember, God either caused or allowed this. He's sovereign. He's God. You don't need to worry about protecting his reputation. Here's the second thing, that in moments like this, get lost. What was the eternal destination of those who died in the attacks? So I, I took three groups of people who were in the attacks. There's the hijackers. Uh, they're the people who are, are in, the, in the towers or, or standing near them, and, the, and they're the, the first responders. And, and it was very interesting. If you let the culture comment, this is why I think relevance is important. If you listen to the culture around you, they gave you their view. So I took three editorial cartoons. Here's one. And, and this is the hijacker. So it says, Justice. I presume that's Satan there, and he's saying, you've reached your final destination, and there are these guys, they're looking at each other, they looked a little panic, and they realize, okay, the hijackers are in hell. That's the point of that cartoon. Here's the second cartoon. These are the first responders, and it says, a fitting reward for those who laid down their life for a friend, and the little comment up there is, you've reached the top. 
And the implication is, here you are, boys, you see the clouds. They're even on clouds. They're in heaven. Pearly gates. Then the, the last one was dri- uh, drawn by a, a school-age child. And uh, this is a little, that's a little easier to see today. You can see it. Statue of Liberty, Twin Towers, a cloud within it. You see people, though I've never seen him. I presume that's Jesus who's receiving these people into heaven. Well, there's gr- there is a great deal of theology in these three cartoons. The question is, is it right? Because the implication is the hijackers are in hell. I, I presume because of what they did. The rescuers in heaven, I presume because they were heroes. And and the people in those towers are in heaven because they were in those towers. That's the theology in these pictures. But, But is it right? Now, I can only go on the basis of of the proclamation that the hijackers refuse to believe in Jesus, don't believe in Jesus. It's not a matter of sincerity. The the guys with, no pun intended here, the guys with the most skin in the game on 9-11 were these guys. They were the, in one sense, cut me slack, Don, and you're going to want to argue this, they, they, they were the most committed, and we can argue with rescuers, but they were very committed very thought they prepared for this they understood it i cannot even fathom the heart rate they must have had as they take this plane they know they don't know how to land it they see these big buildings out there and they fly the plane into it if sincerity got you to heaven these guys would be there right the rescuers what we're saying is no there's just this one action They were noble at this moment. But my presumption, I don't know this, but my presumption is you had rescuers of many different faiths. So if you were an unbelieving fireman who died on 9-11, are you in heaven? You just happened to be working at the World Trade Center when all of this hit? Maybe a good person and you just happened to be there. Your company was there. That's That's why you're there. You're in heaven just because you died in some horrific event? I don't think so. Here's what the Bible teaches. It's really simple. It's Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person that's ever lived. That's Jesus' point back here in Luke 13. You're all in the same condition. You're not better than these Galileans, or, 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 or you're not better than the Jews who were killed in this, in this catastrophic event. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the other side of this. For the wage of sin is death. So we all sin. What's that earn us? It earns us death, not just physical death, but spiritual death, separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You're all going to die. That's what he says. Unless you repent, this will happen to you. You'll face death too judgment too but it won't be some arbitrary judgment it'll be perfect judgment from god and unless you respond unless you believe then your destination is eternal separation from god one of the 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 really cool things about 9-11 is how god used it in so many different ways I can be very cynical, and I, and I am, I was, I am. 
You know, the churches were filled for like two weeks. It, had a, it was a life-changing event for like two weeks. There was a lady, this is where I knew we hit an all-time low. There was a lady in New York City, they interviewed her, and she said, it was amazing how people have changed. Today, a man held a door for me. So that tells you, it's a commentary on what New York City was like before. I thought it'd be interesting just for you to hear like a simple story. Not somebody who was at the towers, but somebody who was in law school when it happened. And, and just the effect it had on them. So this is a clip. It was about 20 minutes. We edited it down to seven. So it's going to feel choppy maybe. But see if you don't get this. This is a pretty cool story. These are the things God does and the way God uses 9-11s and the 9-11s in your life as well. So take a look at this. Hi, my name is Kirsten Story. Um, I have been attending Redemption Gilbert for, I think, about five years. I was in the basement of the school, and uh, all of a sudden this, this guy walks in, and he, he says, you know, there's these planes, and they've, they've flown into the World Trade Center, and the Pentagon's been hit, and there's another one missing. Um, and after that, um, it was kind of, um, it was a little chaotic in, in the law school, and the law school shut down. I went home, and I, uh, I did the worst thing that anyone could have done, but everybody did it. Um, I turned on the TV, and I started watching the news. The one image that, for me, um, really um, stuck and really had a profound impact on me was um, this guy um, who had, um, it was before the towers went down, and I, I imagine he was probably somewhere above where the plane hit um, and determined that things were not going to go very well for him. He was in this business suit, and um, the, the shot was basically of him having jumped, and he was sort of free-falling through space, and his, his jacket was kind of flapping in the wind. And it was just, to me, this, this picture of, of extreme vulnerability um, and loss of, of hope that that it, that the circumstances had gotten so bad that he just felt compelled to jump and and he was just free falling and the bottom was out from underneath him and there was nothing around. The vulnerability and the loss of hope was so so shocking to me um, and that's kind of how I felt um, at the time and just the loss of security and the bottom having come out from underneath me. When things were very hard, I, I was isolated from my family, um, who was across the continent. Um, I was isolated from my boyfriend, who was halfway across the continent. Um, you could not call um, in or out from Boston for a significant part of the day um, because the cell phone um, towers were overloaded. Um, so I was, I was literally unable to contact anyone, and I just felt so alone and vulnerable and um, afraid. So that Sunday, um, I went to church with my landlady, and I remember the sermon was on Isaiah's commission, and um, the point that the pastor made um, in that sermon was that, um, you know, Isaiah's commission and this great vision that he had um, of the Lord and, and the angels and the holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and all of this stuff occurred in the year that King Uzziah died. And so his point was that sometimes 
the Lord will take away our security from us um, in order to reveal himself and to move us forward. And so we should question, you know, the Lord is now revealing himself to us and how do we move forward? I remember, you know, shortly, shortly after that in the fall, um, I was, you know, I got up one morning and just did some reading as usual. And um, I was, you know, alone in my room, probably the only person awake at that hour and um, just doing my, my reading. And um, it's like, it's the cheesiest thing, but um, this is how it went. I finished my reading and I looked down and it was like for the first time um, I was seeing it and God just opened my eyes. And, um, and all of a sudden I just realized that it was all true for the very first time. Um, I had this realization like in the morning and it was a fall day. It must've been sometime in October. Um, and it, it was a beautiful, fall day in um, Boston. Um, the, the weather was cool, but it was sunny, and the leaves were turning, and there might have been a breeze. I mean, it was a gorgeous day. Um, and to me, um, if the beauty of the day was just a further demonstration of how wonderful God was and our Creator, um, and I was not with Him. I was separated from him from my sin and to me like the whole day was painful and gray and dark as beautiful as it was because I was so acutely aware of this God that I was completely separate from so I made it through the day um, and I came home that night um, and I called um, my boyfriend and um, I told him well uh, you know, I've been reading this Bible you gave me um, every morning. And he said, yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm so proud of you, babe. So good. And I was like, yeah, thanks. Um, so I um, have come to the conclusion that all of this is true. I remember there was kind of silence on the other, on the other side of the, the, the line. And um, so I felt compelled to push the conversation. So I said, well, let me, let me go a step further and say, if all of this is true, then there are certain things in here that are true. For instance, um, am I a sinner? And he said, yes. And I said, well, then my sin separates me from God, correct? And he said, yes. And so I said, and am I gonna go to hell? And um, there was dead silence on the other end of the line because I guess, he probably didn't want to tell his girlfriend that she was going to go to hell. Kept going and I said, well, look, and by hell I mean, you know, I'm going to be separate from God for all eternity. Um, is that what that means? Because I don't want that. He said, well, yeah, but I, I think you're missing, I think you're missing something here. Um, and so he, he basically went back and, and re-explained to me God's plan for salvation and how you know, God sent his only begotten son so that we could have, you know, eternal life with him and that Christ's work, his finished work on the cross was so that sinners could be reconciled to God. And I had heard it so many times. I heard it in church when I was younger and I'm sure he had said it to me so many times and I've heard it from other people, other Christians that I knew. Um, but that was the first time that it made sense. And that's the first time that I felt like I really had access to it. And I think that he was very intentional in terms of 
of making it very clear that I would have nothing in order and be all alone, completely alone, and completely alienated from everyone um, so that it was just him and me um, and that he was going to do this work. I'm really grateful for that. So. A great little smile at the end, and I'm really grateful for that. And, and that's what God does. That's kind of where I want to go today is not just the big 9-11, but your individual 9-11s. That God causes or allows everything in your life, and he does it for a reason. To those of us who, who don't know Christ, like these people we just studied in Luke chapter 13, don't, don't waste whatever that is, that tragedy. Don't waste it and miss the point. Or even if somehow you can plan and connive and conceive your way out of some difficulty, there's a, another one coming right behind it and behind that. And if you beat all of them, ultimately you die. And then you face perfect judgment. So, so I'm really aware of the fact that there are people who are with us every week who have never come to this point of putting their faith and trust in Christ and, and developing and growing a relationship with him. You may have been much like, like Kirsten was in the sense of, of been to church and heard about it, may have even been to church and therefore thought you were a Christian, but the reality is you, you never, never were. So this might be a day for that. And for others of you, you're in the midst of pain and suffering. We get it every week in prayer requests and notes that come in and to and through the office about the 9-11s that are in your life. And we're here to, to be servants with you and shepherds with you and to you and to come alongside. So we started probably about a year ago. We take it very seriously and gradually it's become part of the culture is after every service, there'll be people men and women in the front of the room here who are here to, to meet with you. You may be talk about coming to Christ and what it means to be a believer and a Christian, or it may be to talk about some difficulty or challenge in your life, or you just simply want somebody to pray with you. They're here for that. Paul's going to come and lead us in our time of communion, and we're going to praise God through song. If you're in the conference center, Paul will be over there in a minute. And he'll close your, your service there. But in both places, there are men and women who are in the front of the room who are here to, to serve you, to be with you. Please take advantage of that, would you? Let me pray as, as they come. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the 9-11s and the tragedies, not because they're fun or they're easy, but because they're real and they're difficult, and yet it's in the midst of them that so often you teach us. So, God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see this truth that in the middle of our pain, we won't let the pain overwhelm us and debilitate us, paralyze us, but you'll take our pain and hardship and push us to you. God, we want you to do what you need to do to make us your kids. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.